Welcome to Blended by McGraw-Hill. Hi there, it's Wes from McGraw-Hill. On this episode of Blended, I'm so excited to have George Hulene to talk to. George is the Associate Dean for Student Experience at the Faculty of Business and Law at Coventry University. He's been at the university for about 11 years and has seen some huge changes to the university and the wider sector during that time. I've worked with George for five years or so. Uh, he's a digital faculty consultant from McGraw-Hill, meaning that we ask him for his opinion and advice on current topics and the use of digital technology in higher education. In this chat, we cover a really wide gamut of topics, including re-emerging from lockdown teaching and what that means, the biggest challenges in higher education today from his perspective as Associate Dean, and we also talk about how to define the modern student what that means, and how do we meet their needs. I really had a blast during this chat, and I really appreciate George taking the time to share his insights. Uh, I hope you do as well. So please sit back and enjoy the show. So I guess the the, the first place to start really, um, we kind of covered it a little bit a little bit earlier, but what has the return to normal campus teaching been like? How's the start of term been? It, it's a very good question, Wes, and the thing is, you have to look at it from two or three different perspectives. You have the students, obviously, you know, the, the main reason why we're back on campus, we want to give them that social experience. Um, the, you know, the, the pandemic, <clears throat> as sad and as upsetting as it has been, it actually showed us that we can do a lot of good things online. It showed us that if you have the right approach, if you have the right material, if you have the right staff in place, you can actually achieve quite a lot. Um, but you can't achieve that social content, the, the, the social contact, rather, sorry. Um, you can't actually achieve that. And that's a shame, um, but coming back on campus, we were hoping to, um, you know, to get students to experience that social element of the higher education system. And remember, these are students who, um, you know, the ones who joined us in September 20, September 21, September 22, they actually had the end bit of their A-level studies online. They had a very terrible experience with with their examinations and everything else and then they came to university so they found it quite difficult to to realize exactly what that on-campus experience should look like so if you want you know a positive aspect for students and we see them i, I actually see you know thousands of students on campus each and every day um the positive was that they yet again they can actually make friends they can you know socialize with each other they can create long-term relationships and and we can see how beneficial that is for them the, the not i wouldn't say the not so good aspect but in a way it, it has been quite interesting to see that even though we came back on campus fully so at the moment if a, if a student at coventry wants to study entirely on campus they can there's no restriction. We, we're welcoming anyone on campus, international, home, EU, it doesn't matter. 
the interesting aspect is the fact that some students are choosing to continue to study online. We want to give them that flexibility. When we're not, we're not saying from the start you have to be on campus for for all the courses that um, we deliver. Obviously, we have courses that they don't require physical resources that we have just on campus. So we're we are allowing those students who might have done you know stage one year one they might have studied fully online they found it quite good because they really enjoyed everything we did so they just want to continue now um and and actually the interesting aspect is some students come back and say no thank you i don't i don't need any on-campus study i would really appreciate if i can continue online and and again we were discussing this earlier but everything we did with with you, with other colleagues from, you know, I, I call you guys colleagues because we are colleagues in the HE sector working together for, for the students, um, actually shows that they, you know, they achieve their learning outcomes. They, they are very successful in assessments. They graduate successfully. And these online studies, it fits their new life after the pandemic much better so if it's working for them that's perfectly fine we're happy to provide it again on a course by course basis for the staff side it it's also quite interesting i think a lot of staff found a rhythm of working from home in the pandemic and breaking that rhythm has i wouldn't say breaking it but in a way, while with teaching and learning, we don't want to go back to the old system where everything was, you know, we were talking about, you know, chalk and, and blackboard earlier, but we don't want to go back there, but we want our staff to be on campus and to, to kind of create a safe environment about around those students who are on campus and to give them that sense of real sense of belonging. Um, but generally speaking, I think it has been okay. Parking is terrible, though, I have to say. We're, we're really <laughs> struggling with parking because colleagues, there's so many colleagues who are coming on campus. And uh, yeah, if you're later than half eight every morning, you're not going to find the parking space in the university parking. It is, it's a pretty interesting thing that sort of kind of splitting that between the students and then the academics in that, Obviously, the academics have a knowledge of and, a, and a, a memory of what it was like before the pandemic to be in higher education and how it worked. And, and, and there is a there's a standard to be held against previously. But for those students coming through, particularly, as you said, those ones who've got two, three years of almost completely online learning. Um, you know, they've. I wouldn't really call the in and out. You know, the 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 in and out experience that they had at at you know at high school particularly mm. stable. Let's say you know if a whole year group can get sent home um, because somebody's tested positive, it's not consistent. That for them, I guess they've got nothing to compare this online learning to. Really, that that's that's how they've they've learned. So it's a really, it's a, I think it's a really interesting time that normally we see that there's a big jump in the way that students are expected to learn from from secondary school where it's very you know it's very much you're in the classroom for this amount of time and somebody tells you what you need to learn 
um, normally that jump from high school to university is really jarring because they have to almost become entirely self-motivated overnight and it can be a really difficult transition whereas students who've been in that model of kind of a flipped classroom or, or, or where you know they can access the work when they want to it'd be interesting to see I think those who are coming through how different they find the university learning experience in it because I don't I don't think it'd be such a bigger a jump anymore um quite interestingly one of the most common complaints we get at the moment and like us this semester right so we started the right in the middle of September now we're at the end of week six so we're literally halfway through the first semester of Coventry one of the most common complaints is I don't have any experience with on-campus exams. We would have never thought about this. Oh. We had students who came to us, as you know, and we've had this conversation many times, we have to run exams for the modules which are accredited by professional bodies, right? So in accounting, you can't escape those exams. And obviously, we have online systems that are helping us run online exams but professional bodies are saying no if it's a student who is studying on campus they have to have the exam on campus and from those students we have quite a significant number who come and say the last time i did an on-campus or you know in person exam handwritten exam is three and a half years ago or four years ago in some cases I'd never thought of that. No, yeah. we, you know, we thought about them and we thought about giving students some mock exams and so on. But obviously, you know, we're doing everything we can to, to create that exam type environment for them and to say, right, sit down. This is the paper, two hours. That's it. At the end, you'll have to submit it. But of course, we don't have unlimited resources. We don't have all the space. It has to be booked because we have some very large modules and so on. And you think, wow, I mean, you plan for so many things as a university, as a, as a school department, however you call it. And then students come in and say, actually, I don't really know how to hold, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I don't know how to hold a pen in my hand and in the same time to write an exam at a university level because I haven't done this in four years. And you actually expect me to sit an exam on campus, which accounts for 75% of my module mark. So no pressure. Thank you. <laughs> that's, and that's something, that's where reality hits you. And you think, okay, <laughs> It's not just about the strategy, it's not just the pedagogical things, it's not just about the, the policies we're putting in place. In reality, some students, not that they don't know, I mean, that they don't have the confidence at the level mm. where they should have it to make sure that they are, you know, successfully and confidently, more mentally rather, sitting through that exam. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that is fascinating. There's... I guess there's so many things that we just assume that they will have done because yeah. they, it's always been, it's always been done, you know, when they were at school or, or wherever they were beforehand, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out. I mean, that's fascinating. I had never thought about that. Um. <laughs> and we heard it 
quite frequently, if not each and every week in the first six weeks. Oh, I can imagine. We had um, some, some noise over the summer. We had some noise here and there and so on. And we thought, ah, well, you know, it was the end of the, the, the three-year degree. So some year, some year three students came and said, well, actually, I haven't done this before. But smaller numbers over the summer made it so much easier for us to manage. Mm. Mm, not now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds... um. Sounds like it's going to be fun come assessment and uh, come assessment season. That's going to be oh, a joy, a joy. Exam board review. Uh, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's the same for staff. It's the same for staff. We have new colleagues who joined us. You know, they finished their PhDs. They finished their research. Um, they were appointed as assistant lecturers or lecturers. And they're um academic experience if you like is not to the point where they have marked you know a pile of and 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 you you remember those piles in my office you know 300 papers you have to mark them in 10 days they've never had this experience God. it's the same for some academics not everyone obviously mm. but some academics didn't have this experience so it was a learning, you know, and we had in the pandemic, you and I had this conversation. It was a very steep learning curve at the beginning of the pandemic. It flattened because everyone got used with all the technology and everything else. And now, maybe not as steep, without a doubt, but it's still a steep learning curve for students because we are asking them to actually sit down for a cup of coffee with their colleagues. I mean, wow, who would have thought that students would have to do this again after the pandemic? And for some academics to obviously now find a very effective way in which to blend the old, old school way of teaching and obviously the new, I was going to say the new innovations. The innovations were introduced as a result of the pandemic we have to maintain quite a lot of them as well. So, no, that's. I mean, that's. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I think over the yeah, uh, over the next year. Or so that actually these on quite nicely. The, the the next question that I had um, is that I I often see people use the word um, the modern student. You know, they've had different variations like digital natives or or whatever generation letter and number combination we're on um this <laughs> this week um but what do you think what do you think the modern student is and and what do they what do they need how do you how do you how do you help support the the modern student in in, in however way you end up defining it wow <clears throat> you know i had a lot of interviews on pedagogy and student experience but was never asked how do you define the modern student that's why i really like to speak with you um, I try my best, try my best. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because it's it's a brilliant question. Um, how do I define the modern student? You know, I define the modern student in the same way that I define the modern person. If you If you draw a line right through the middle of the seven and a half or eight billion people that we have on the planet, how do you define the modern person? Let's think about it a bit. 
years and years ago, and not very far, uh, you know, um, away, we actually had, when you wanted to watch a movie, you could go to the cinema or go and rent a DVD, well, not say DVD, a VHS, <laughs> right? So you had to you had to do that. When um, then we went into Netflix, then we went into Amazon Prime, then we went into digital television. Now you can watch Amazon Prime while you're in space, most likely. I don't know whatever I'm exaggerating, but you can watch it in a dungeon somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> And people got used with it. Tell anyone nowadays that to watch the new series of something, they have to go to a shop in the city center, each and every week, pick up a VHS, pay for it, sign for it. You have seven days to watch it, enjoy it, remember everything. Got to rewind it. Rewind it, because <laughs> if you're not rewinding it, you're, you're paying for it. And then bring it back. And then do the same. You know, how how many people, you know, we invented this word, binge watching, right? How many people used to binge watch on VHS recorders? Nobody. Because you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the possibility. Right? You, you'd then, need a very good blockbuster card with, you know, you could get up to four rentals at a time to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But nowadays, it's fast, accessible. Three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock, you can't sleep, you watch something, terrible idea, you do, you shouldn't do it, but we all end up doing it anyway. It's the same for students, unfortunately. That, that added flexibility of the way the world has developed in the last 15 to 20 years at most is without a doubt something that we see students enjoy nowadays. I I used to teach, as you remember, years ago, before the pandemic, I used to teach a module with 350 to 400 students. In 2016, 2017, we used to call it flipped classroom, mm. right? So we didn't used to call it online learning. We used to say, we're flipping the classroom. We're putting everything online and we're recording videos and so on. And that's a time when there were pockets of flipped classrooms. I was doing that. I was recording some of my, well, I was recording my lectures more or less like a podcast. I was putting the slides online. I was putting all video and students were appreciating that. But in the same time, the attendance in my classroom was going to 50, 60% by week seven. Because students were saying, why should I come to class when you're putting such good content online? Mm. I can come to the seminars, I'm practicing everything there. I don't need to come to a two-hour lecture. And that flexibility we see nowadays as well. We're actually seeing something which is even more <clears throat> interesting than just the added flexibility of online studies. But the modern student, and I dare say not just at Coventry, because I speak with a lot of colleagues from the sector, not just in the UK, but you look at China, you look at Hong Kong, you look at most of the European countries, certainly the US, they don't have the patience of actually watching a one hour recording of a lecture online. And that makes perfect sense. After 10 minutes, they just think, oh, for goodness sake, a friend of mine texted me on 
on WhatsApp and I just have to pick up. And you pick up and you realize that in the background, the lecture is keep, you know, the lecture recording keeps going and you've missed 40 minutes out of the 60 minutes because you disconnected yourself, right? You're not, you're not there anymore. So what we see on one hand, we see students who want the flexibility of the online studies. Um, I mean, I dare say not online studies, but blended studies, right? So not, not necessarily fully online. We still don't see students who want fully, fully, fully online. Everything has to be online and no contact with any person. But in, on top of that, you see students who want fully online, but in a more manageable way. Um, you very rarely see a student who says, I watched a two hour session fully recorded being online. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. And I remember everything that was mentioned in there. And again, I don't blame them because I'm, I, you know, I speak for myself now. I'm pretty much exactly the same. Every time I do an online training, I have to cut it in small chunks to say, you know, much like I dare say LinkedIn learning are doing where they take a three hour Excel course and they cut it in very small chunks. They realize people can't really focus for 10 minutes. So we'll cut it to three minutes and we'll make it seem to them that actually we're giving them a break. It's not a break because if you want to do it, you still do it all in one go. Um, so yeah, the modern student wants to use as much technology as possible to complete their studies. Um, the modern student, I dare say, doesn't read emails anymore. <laughs> um, I was speaking with our uh, students' union. Um, it was, yeah, it was on Wednesday. And one research that I want to start soon is um, a bit of a, a bit of a small, it's a tiny project, but I want to identify from our students <clears throat> what methods of communication do they want us to use? Because we're sending students messages on our VLA in Aula, as you know it. We're sending emails, we're sending messages on um, their students' portal. Um, we're sending messages via other students. So when you know when we we have student reps, as we call them, the, the student representatives, and we're sending messages via themselves. Um, and yet you still have a, a pocket of students with who it kind of feels like the message hasn't reached them. I'm just trying to understand, well, why? What do you want us to use? TikTok, Instagram? I was thinking of WhatsApp broadcasting a few weeks ago. I thought, is it easier if we create, if we pay for a WhatsApp business account and to just say, join this group and, you know, it, it's just a one-way communication just to make sure that it reaches them? And quite a lot of students said, actually, that would be quite good. We need something to come to our phone yeah, but not an email per se, and so on. I think it's um, it's it's a really, you know, I've, I've worked with, uh, kind of done this conversation with quite a few people, and the the different ways of communicate student communication is is has always been a problem. I've seen some people use Discord channels, which I thought was quite interesting, because um, yeah. you got a, and it was quite funny. They their their gender split 
was was quite significant because a lot of the um the kind of the audience who were already users on there tended to be their male audience because they were using it to play games with their mate like video games that kind of stuff with 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 their mates but then the people who engaged more with the actual communications once it was there was their female population it was it was quite interesting to see that there were you know the demographics of of how those things work and i think it's always going to be challenging when you've got you know particularly with significant numbers of of international students as well or or students who they haven't come through the same system as everybody else and you know like you know if we were if we wanted to get students from from asia easily communicated you know wechat would be the yeah. first place that, that that you'd go to but then you know not all european students are going to use wechat in the same way and so it's it's a it'd be a really interesting project actually i think to see how they actually do want to be communicated but then again there's always the difference between how do they how would they want to be communicated to and then how would they actually communicate back um because that's yeah. always that's always the um the challenging one well are there I entirely agree. And I want to say, because we were speaking about the modern student, there's something quite interesting that I have seen with the modern student. And again, I, I speak about the average modern student, you know, the, the median, if you like, right? Um, not the average, actually, the median. They're not very keen on technology per se, on technology that would help them. I, I wouldn't say would help them in life, but would help them in building their career they're very good with social media they're very good with using uh, a tic-tac talk whatever tiktok um instagram i'm only on facebook um a colleague of ours actually calling uh, we were having a conversation and he said who who here is on linkedin and we just said our conversation i said i'm on who here is at that moment i had my facebook account but it was deactivated i haven't used it for like two years and i only open it again because my son goes to school and they're using facebook to publish quite a lot of things uh at the reception and he said oh linkedin is the facebook of the of the elderly <laughs> so i thought that's an interesting way to put it if you're not on LinkedIn, it means you're not old enough. If you're on LinkedIn, it means you're old enough and you're not going to be on any of the others. And I thought, oh, I don't really agree with it, but I can see the sense of, of some of it. It's the, the demographic split between the social media apps is fascinating. So I, you know, we look at where our audience age group and demographics skew on our different platforms. And it's, it is very, it's fascinating to see that like the difference, you know, yeah. LinkedIn is the business but you know it's where where you go to to find jobs and talk about yourself a little bit so until you've got a job or you're looking for a job you know first and second year students tend to not really care about linkedin <laughs> by third year linkedin is the most important thing yeah. in the world um but it was, uh, when you were saying about students being um not great at as you might call it career technology let's uh, yeah. let's call it that They've all, in general, I've always seen them, they're very good consumers. Students in general will consume media and produce, they'll, they'll consume tech and use tech to produce media for the software, the platforms that they are interested in. And it's not until I think potentially you have to start, you know, getting a job, paying bills, that kind of thing, that you you discover a newfound interest for the stuff that's going to help you, help you do that. Um, and, you know, 
I can I can kind of understand why a student would want to sit down, you know, why a 18 year old would want to sit down on a Thursday night and really power through some Excel. Um, I can <laughs> I can kind of understand that, you know, you can't really do power power Excel whilst you're on the bus on the way to on, on the way to uni, but you can sit and scroll through scroll through social media. It's that's true, but actually <clears throat> they won't be able to escape it if they want to be successful in their careers. Um, I dare say that a student who doesn't want to embrace Excel will struggle to even complete their year three assessments, let alone the tasks they'll have to complete when they get a job, uh, when they get a graduate scheme. Um, it's a reality. You can't escape it anymore. At the moment, if you're not good with if in in finance, for example, we're speaking about finance here. If you don't understand Excel, Excel will do all your data manipulations. If if you can't if you can't do that, you, you can't you can't call yourself a financial analyst. Word will allow you to write your reports. There are some people who still use Excel to write their reports, and that's a, a beautiful skill to do it. But okay. you can't. You have to be a magician in Excel, and I, I still don't understand how they do it. Access, if you're using Access, if you have a laptop that allows you to use Access, that'll be your database. If you can't use that, uh, and, and you need large databases, but you can survive without Access. Outlook, obviously, to send your emails, and we all have to send emails nowadays because it's free. You don't have to pay for a post. You don't, For the post, you don't have to do anything. People are so keen on sending emails left, right, and center. You have to know how to use them. And in finance, if you don't get yourself into coding, and I say coding not in terms of you know web design coding, but in terms of either Python, Stata, R, MathLab, you know this type of you know high frequency mathematical or statistical software that will help you work with very large populations or very large size data sets, you will struggle a lot. I mean, there's no way an investment bank at the moment, if you don't know how to do these things, you don't stand a chance. It, it, that's, that's the reality. As an accountant, you know, a, a bit of Excel will help you, but you'd be you'd be surprised that like one this is one of the things that, that I, we see really commonly now this kind of employability and career skills um conversation is is getting more and more like louder and louder and louder and i think lots of people have i think lots of students particularly have have a misconception as you said about how important some of those skills are you know i work for a publisher you know i work for a publisher i work in the marketing team the amount of time that I have to spend in Excel building pivot tables and um, like, and and using you know SQL to query just just to query huge chunks of data about you know where a certain book is being used and things like that. But it would never have come to mind when I started out in my career of going, I'm going to need to know how to build some pivot tables, and that's always that's always been the like the little secret marker in in when we've had you know new colleagues join the team of. Do they know how to do pivot tables or not? Because that's normally the bit where people get stuck. You can't really fudge your way through a pivot table very well. 
Um, and I think in every in every field, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, obviously in finance, uh, in finance, it's a super core part of, of, of just the whole industry. It's kind of how it works and how it functions. But even in, you know, a softer, in inverted commas, softer job, like in, in, in marketing that, you know, we have to use it all day, every day. And sometimes I feel like there are, when I look at different universities and, and, and some departments do it well, some departments don't, but there's often a bit of a assumption that students are just going to be able to do it. And they only ever really get taught or, or, or have, have a, they only have a, like an Excel module when they've got to do it specifically for a piece of assessment and they learn how to use they learn how to use excel or spss to run this particular thing for an assessment and then they pretend like they're never going to have to touch it again and then uh, and then they go off out, out into the world and it's it's a it's a really it's a it's a fascinating thing it's a big in the us the like kind of the kind of career readiness and yeah. and employability stuff they have full modules dedicated and full programs dedicated to that kind of stuff it's it feels as though in the particularly in the uk but also in, in europe that it's kind of a it's a bit more of a of a nice to have your your best students will go and learn that stuff anyway or they already know how to do it is the kind of the perception that i get sometimes do you think do you think that's that's accurate or um i think it's accurate to a certain degree i think academics are very keen on students having these skills it is 100% accurate in the sense that most academics expect students to have these skills anyway. Um, a lot of universities and a lot of colleagues I speak with from across the sector, they are very keen on helping students with these skills. The problem is the amount of, in a way, the amount of pressure there is on the academia, on the higher education in general, the amount of pressure there is on delivering graduates who content-wise know everything made it a bit difficult for us to take a step back and to say, okay, we'll do the, I don't know, business management content here, but what else would be nice for students to actually know on top of the academic content. I've always said, you know, years and years and years ago, and I'm and I'm so disappointed that I lost that paper. There was a research paper I, I read, which actually said that 80% of students forget at least 90% of the content they study if they don't touch it in the first two years after graduating. And I'm not questioning it. I don't remember, don't quote me in terms of it might not be accurate but this is how i remember it sounds about right uh, it sounds about right to me it might not be i'm not saying but if i can get a student to actually build up a skill in technology to to know how to use a laptop not just for their social media which again is beautiful if they want to do this perfectly fine but to actually do something which is meaningful to their career, I think as a sector, we owe it to students and we owe it to the other sectors. We owe it to generate, you know, to build that confidence in graduates that 
they'll get to the job on the first Monday when they get when they secure the job, and when the manager says, "I need a report in Excel on this," they won't start scratching their head and thinking. I remember George told me something on this in year one, and this was mm, let me Google it. Let me, and even if they Google it to find a solution, that's perfectly fine. But they'll have to have the confidence to do these things. Yeah. Um, it's often the it's the knowing what to Google is it, half of the battle with these things. Is that yeah, you can go and yeah. you can go and Google to your heart's content unless you know the vague ideas you know like excel in particular you, know, the, you need to know what formula you need to google the yeah. the shortening form uh the shortening form i, I learned right, about the right. concatenate function the other week and it was very exciting i had yeah. no idea it existed but I was like, oh okay but the thing is 99 you'll very rarely find a person who knows you know a super amount of you know tasks and formulas and and so on in in excel what's important is to know what you want to achieve and how to find a solution there's so much content out there um god forbid the internet stopped to exist we wouldn't be able to do anything but no it's a reality you have to know how where to find it and to have that confidence that resilience oh i have a new problem now you know what am i trying to achieve here I kind of know where I want to go, but I might not have the solution at hand. That's perfectly fine. You know, there's there's content out there that will help you. Um, but students actually, it's a bit of a shame because students students come into the higher education part of their journey not having had enough experience of these technologies. And I'm not saying that's a problem. I think it's just but they they haven't it, it's life in general you know i'm not maybe six maybe some six from colleges they push students to actually build these knowledges and skills but when they come to us they kind of sometimes they feel like well i don't you know when i need it in the future i'll learn it when you think well yeah but i'm i'm giving you the platform here to learn it um they just have to to be a bit more resilient and to the genuinely wants to learn something that will help them in the future no i think you are you are very right there um which reminds me actually we should talk about uh, at some point there's some stuff we could do that could help with that um okay. on that's just on a that's just on a said like can't take the salesman out of my brain unfortunately um <laughs> which, say, which mm. where am i speaking with <laughs> I'm I'm conscious that I know it's it, it is for a little bit a little bit. Oh, don't um, worry, I have time. If uh, you have time, I have. Oh, so. brilliant, brilliant. Because yeah, there's some good good questions um, coming up. Um, so we sort of we we we've looked at kind of this return to normal, the modern student. The the next thing really I, w- I wanted to find out is what do you think the biggest challenge is for higher ed at the moment? What what are from kind of from a we can sort of go with your with your head of head of school hat on or from like an instructor level or, or however you want to look at it but it's sort of there's always there's a lot of ongoing challenges that have been there for years you know we've always talked about engagement or assessment or or accessibility and those are always pretty constant but what do you think is the the the, the biggest challenge for you at the at, for higher ed in general at the moment 
there's probably five challenges that we're all facing in the higher education sector at the moment. I, I find it very difficult to put a pecking order together, but I think in, the biggest challenge realistically is what as a sector do we want to learn from um, from, from the pandemic period? Um, a lot of universities had to go into um, you know, these urgent measures of help. This is happening. We have to do something. Um, at the beginning, it was extremely rusty. Um, we spent thousands of, of um, hours in, in that April of 2020 to actually iron out all the creases in what was then fully online learning. Um, I fear the biggest challenge at the moment is that the sector will become complacent and will actually fall back on what we knew best. And we spoke earlier about blackboard paint and I can envisage some universities building a stock of that blackboard paint to, to make sure that they have all sorts of really hands-on activities, you know, chalk and board and everything, which would be a shame. It really would be a shame. This is like, you know, you think about in the medical sector, and I apologize for the analogy, but sometimes when I'm tired, I come up with some rather stupid analogies. But in the medical sector, you identify a new technology that would help you save, you know, 50 to 60% of the people who are struggling with a certain illness it's rusty at the beginning you 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 iron it out you fine-tune it everything is working fine and then when the number of people who actually suffer from that illness decreases thanks to your implementations thanks to your innovation then you're coming and saying that's it now i'm not going to use it anymore because it's not needed well how do you use that technology to actually make advances in other areas in the same sort of medical sector? And it's the same here, I see it. It's the same, how do we use what we learn in the pandemic to make students' life better, to make staff experience better? Um, and I think, this is something that the whole sector, the whole higher education ecosystem has to work on. Not just the universities, not just students' union, not just staff unions, but the regulators as well, the government, the founding, the, the funding councils, everyone has to work on identifying, you know, we always say, oh, um, UK 2050, this is where we want to be as a nation. In 2050, where is higher education 2030 or 2035 or 2040? Where is that policy that says, at the moment, an undergraduate student has to have 12 to 14 hours on campus? If that's not where the demand is, how do you actually create a, a clever sector, a clever manufacturing sector, for example, will always create the supply 
for the demand which happens in five years time. I, I was always fascinated to hear that Airbus A380, the, the biggest jet, the design of that, I'll, I'll say something which is probably slightly wrong, but the design of that started in, 20, in 1990 and it was launched in around 2005, six, seven, whenever. And that, that's where I think we should be. Whereas at the moment, the higher education sector is focusing on how are we get, quite rightfully, because of you know all the mechanics in the sector, we're focusing on where do we want to be next year? Where do we want to be at the end of this semester? Where do we want to be? I don't feel we have a kind of like sector-wide conversation and the subsequent policies that will, I know policies make, make you a bit angry. <laughs> hey, you, uh, you know I love policies, George. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, that's, but, that's, but that's the type of, the challenge at the moment is for us to kind of fall back on the successes we've achieved in the, during the pandemic and then say, ah, oh, well, it's worked well and so on, but now we're going back to what we know best because people will always revert to what, where their confidence is. But we were pushed out of our confidence zone by a very nasty virus. And look what beautiful things appeared as a result of that in, in this whole madness and blackness around the world, you have pockets of really beautiful developments in pretty much in each and every sector, I think, in each other, but certainly in the higher education sector. How do we envisage now the future of the higher education? I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenges at the moment. But student engagement, certainly, student engagement at the moment. And I feel a redefinition of student engagement is needed. Okay. What go, is go. it? How do we define student engagement? How do we, um, I'm working, I think we had this conversation, but I'm working on a QAA funding, funded project with uh, 10 other universities. And this is what we're trying to find out from students. I'm leading that project actually. And this is what we're trying to find out. How do students, as a result of the pandemic, now define engagement? Um, I think I think that's one of the, if not the second biggest challenge. But I don't know. Again, it's it's very difficult because, you know, in that entire, if you create a Venn diagram with challenge, they're all crossing. They're all kind of mixing with each other. You have the policy changes. You have all the funding. It's very difficult for universities at the moment. You have international students, and that's another challenge. But students' engagement and the future of the higher education sector is something that's something that has, I wouldn't say has to be addressed very fast, but has to be addressed effectively. Yeah, it, it's not something I think that you can, it, you can't stick your head in the sand uh, about it and kind of just ignore ignore the fact that you know, changes, changes have happened and will continue to happen. And it's... Yeah, I think we saw particularly when, as you said, when when the kind of the pandemic and the lockdown happened, people were thrown into this emergency state. And I I got very uh, I saw lots of people saying they were doing online learning or flipped learning or distance learning. And like, 
not really you're kind of doing emergency remote teaching that's 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 kind of the state that most people went into in that in those first couple of months because you know there wasn't the time to think about how to do those things and, and what to do and you saw some universities some departments come out of that actually really well in that they embraced they embraced the change and they used that opportunity to go and, and drive like i said you know some longer term structural changes you know we saw probably about in the i'd say in the two and a half years that we saw uh that, that we were sort of in that lockdown and in that trouble i think the universities that embraced it probably advanced about four five four, years five, five of, years definitely yeah yeah and then the ones that sort of allowed the changes to happen to them and didn't take a you know didn't take control of the change you know they they're the ones who are snapping back into let's just go back there and the, the difference is going to be night and day um of and you know even in the way that we look at engagement a university that's looking at, at engagement in a new format in 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 how students are doing xyz or whatever it, it ends up being defined as are going to be able to address the problems in that engagement much better than uh than somewhere that's sort of stuck in you know 2015 ideas of you know there's always been the issues of of access versus engagement of, of looking at all oh, this yeah. documents on being clicked on uh, i won't say brand names but being clicked on our lms about 400 times this week isn't that great you know that has access is not engagement they're not the same and i think most places moved away from doing that they moved away from from you know clicks on a clicks on a page or access onto onto you know their lms they stopped equating that to being usage and engagement they start to look for kind of the more the the normative markers again the secondary markers of how long for what did they do what impact did that have and that was great and now I'm kind of seeing it, you know, as you say, there are people who are going to be almost going back to to that kind of mentality of, of okay, we don't have to do a flipped environment. We don't have to do a, a blended environment or give students, you know, the options of how they engage and what they do. We can go back to what it was before, but it's just going to give you the same terrible markers of somebody has clicked on a link four times. It's it, it. We should always be getting smarter about how we look at things, and I'll be very interested to see actually what comes out from that from that um, project because it, it'd be something that I think a lot of people will be very keen about because engagement is one of those things that's so difficult to you know it's so difficult to measure, and if you can't measure it, you can't you can't test against it. Um, the, num the, the number of very excitable people that I that, that I talk to academics a lot of the time where they have come up with some novel system of, of of engaging their students and on the surface of it it looks great and they'll come in and say the students are really engaged and then you have to kind of drill into it and say okay how are you quantifying that how does how does their interaction their conversation their blah 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 how does that feed into your metrics of engagement and time and time again, it always comes back to, oh, they clicked on a thing or they attended a thing. And it's it's still feels quite quite what's Luddite the, in a way. What's the impact? <laughs> yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And it's sort of, you know, we have to be, I have to start to think about, you know, this action informing another action. Informing, and that, again, kind of comes down to how, how 
suited of courses to, to to a kind of more scaffolded environment or you know to have stepping stones and 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 seeing how students progress and use information to inform something else it's it's going to be a really interesting um a really interesting time i think for to see the the difference in approaches um you you know my feelings on 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 certain certain universities and how they how they <laughs> approach change um but it's it's uh it could be it could be interesting to see what happens i think i every time we introduce something i mean not every time but sometimes i speak with colleagues and i always recommend them to read um who moved my cheese i think we spoke about it a few years yeah. ago I, I remember you mentioning this but i can't yeah. tell, um, remind and me i what thought you know what this is uh, it's a very thin but i mean it's not it's a few pages i think 20 or 25 pages it's a very tiny book you know who moved my cheese and that 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 should be the base the key book that everyone who is subject to change should read because it makes it it makes everything about change more digestible more manageable you think okay it's not really that bad but look at look at the potential if i i have to be a very constructive critical friend of whoever introduces the change but in the same time if i don't change i'm not going to spoil it and uh, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll i'll make sure i give it a read uh, i i think i can manage 25 pages just about oh you just don't <laughs> um so yeah i think i'm going to ask you a, a an interesting question here okay um yeah. I, I saw I saw this question and I thought this would be something that you might give me a quite an interesting answer for. Okay. If you had 10 times your departmental budget, <laughs> what, what would you do with it? What would you change? Staff experience. Okay. How so? Um I've always been in the in, in student experience. Um, course director, um, associate head of school student experience. Now I'm associate dean of basically the largest business school in the UK. And I'm still looking after student experience. We have a team of associate deans. Um, every time I had staff experience at a very high level, I had student experience at a very high level. I don't think I've never, I mean, shame, shame on me because I've never really read the paper, a, re, a paper that might have done some research in this area to, to see if there really is a, you know, causation or a correlation is it, it really depends on how you look at this. But anecdotally, every time I felt you know, deep inside me, I'll go to meetings, I'll go to, you know, one-to-one -one cup of tea, cup of coffee, sandwich meeting. Um, and I would see colleagues satisfied. Again, it's very difficult to define that satisfaction. It's not, a lot of people think, oh, it's the high salary. Mm, it's not just that. It's, it, you know, that staff satisfaction is such a complex mixture of, a thousand and one different factors um i i would really focus on staff satisfaction from um 
if I had 10 times the budget, I would spend uh, 70% of it on staff satisfaction, which obviously includes all the resources we have, all the physical resources, all the, uh, I would create the environment around staff a very safe environment for them to thrive with their students. And I would spend 30% of that um, of that budget on creating a better connection between the higher education sector and the other sectors. I think that's where we're actually missing quite a bit. Um, I would like I wouldn't say I'd like everything I do to be decided by those sectors, but I'd like everything I do to be informed by what's needed in those sectors. Um, I it, it probably sounds a bit odd that for someone in student experience, I wouldn't really spend anything specifically on student experience, but student experience is the culmination of everything you do. If, if, if I spend, if I have a million pounds and I go to students and say, I'm giving you a million pounds, jump on these planes and you're going, you know, a plane is going to China, one is going to US, one is going to South Africa, enjoy the next two weeks because I'm giving you a, an amazing trip. And then the rest of the time I have very, I wouldn't say very, but I have staff who are not very satisfied. I have no links with the sectors. I have no. I think that's a that that would be a mistake on on my behalf. But I would I would really spend a lot of time on staff satisfaction. No, it's it's really, I'm, I'm intrigued by your answer. I think that's it's definitely something that not many people get the opportunity to, to to think about it you know it's, it's why i wanted to ask you the question because you know i talked to to course instructors or program leaders and obviously you're you're you know associate dean it's it's a very it's a very different kind of conversation it's it's really interesting that you went that that staff satisfaction is is such a fundamental part is that so do you think then the well, one of the things that i often you know, we we see a lot of cycle uh, cycles of of stress and workload and stress and workload with within academia. Um, you know, as to when people have got big cohorts to manage, or it's marking season, which some of your newbies are going to really enjoy when they come into it um, <laughs> in the next six weeks. And then there's oh, when does my research get to begin, and all of those things. So, do you think that that then making making your staff's lives easier or making your colleagues lives easier that would you really think it would have like such a big effect uh, like making uh, on on how students experience it as well i think it's not about making their lives easier but making their um life i mean their academic life at work their work life more fulfilling more enjoyable i would like to create an environment. And this, I can pretty much guarantee that all the colleagues I speak with across the sector are, suggest, are making the same sort of suggestions. You know, when I speak with other associate deans or deans from other faculties, they're actually saying almost exactly the same things. 
They might not formulate it the way I formulate it in terms of the staff satisfaction, but I'm sure they're all thinking of exactly the same. It's not about making their lives easy, but making them more fulfilling, making them more enjoyable in the sense of them actually wanting to work together in an environment that allows them to build those long-term work relationships that that have some output for them that actually help them give that you know it, it gives them that sense of achievement of actually i've done something i dare say not many academics and i mentioned it earlier that this is not just about salaries is not just about it, it really isn't about that i i'm yet to find an academic with whom I would speak on a one-to-one -one basis, who would actually tell me I entered academia because I wanted to become a millionaire. That 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 doesn't happen, and we both know that. But it's not, I think the entire sector, because of the pandemic at the moment, we, we have been under a lot of pressure to um you know to change to to keep our students studies going and to and to deliver everything that was expected of us that almost the entire sector got into a um into a bit of a slow down approach everything has to slow down now because it has been a very rapid change process for us quite rightfully um but i really i dare say that at any moment in time i'm thinking now that that's why I said I really like speaking with you because you really make me think. Um, if I if I if I think back to 2011 when I started my academic career, there's no moment in time when I wouldn't have spent that tenfold budget on staff satisfaction. Even when you really have staff at the highest level of satisfaction, I would still continue with that um, because. I mean, you look at the biggest companies in the world. You know, for years and years, we used to we used to use Google as an example of, look how you know the the staff satisfaction, um, where it is and how much Google invests in that. Um, and unfortunately, we can't compare ourselves as a sector. Resources are not where uh, you know where those other sectors are. It's very. You, you mean you don't have as much money as Google? I mean, really. I think every I think every university would love to have as much money as Google, <laughs> but it's um, yeah. I think it's wishful thinking because of obviously the resources and especially at the moment with the cost of living and everything that's happening. But um, yeah, I, I would spend it on on staff satisfaction. That's thank you. That that's a really good. It's a really good answer to something, and it kind of clarif clarifies uh, that you know there can sometimes be a perception around uh, around how decision making happens and 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 what the motivations are of, of 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 people who are more senior. And it's 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 nice to actually hear from that perspective, from your perspective as well, because you know, often the uh, the the senior management phrase in, uh, is. It, they can seem quite distant in a way and, and and not and not necessarily involved in in you know actually making their colleagues life a little bit better so no i think 
I know that's that's what people think in the sector. Well, no, not that that's what people. Some people might think that, mm. but I can guarantee there's no university. I don't think there is a university leader who would actually say, "Oh, I don't care about my staff. I just want my NSS to be ninety percent, and I want that." I can pretty much guarantee that every university leader is actually thinking about staff satisfaction because this is the sector that we're working on you're relying on people to deliver the best student satisfaction no absolutely absolutely so i'm not going to ask you some other questions um just now just because i've been talking to you for like really? an hour an hour and a half so but thank you so much george all so and it was good catching up with you anyway take care all the best right, I'll bye, -bye. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to my guests for sharing their perspectives with us and for giving us an insight into their world. If you'd like to learn more about what McGraw-Hill can do for you, please visit mheducation.co.uk. Links are all in the show notes. If you've got something to say and would like to get involved in an episode of Blended, please get in touch with us too. Until next time, I've been Wes and this was Blended. Blended.